Shalom. We're going to continue our Torah study in this series that's called The Gospel According to Moses, Exodus. And I remember Torah is the first five books of the Bible, or it's, it's a way of denoting the first five books of the Bible. Torah just basically means instruction, so we're doing God's instruction in the first five books of the Bible. Our main goal is related to John 5.39, where Jesus says all scripture testifies of him. The only scripture that they had in Jesus' day was the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And so, indeed, where is Jesus in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament? Where is he in the Torah? Where is he in these events of the Exodus? So again, we're going to focus in and continue in our lesson. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to the end of chapter 2, and then the first verse of Exodus chapter 3. Now before we start, just a couple things, just as some reminders. One, I hope you can check on the uh, podcast, the Torah Nugget number 10, Torah Nuggets number 10, and it's related to why I do what I do, but it's also related to the fact of it's a message for our day and our time. These days of real danger and distress, disorder, and indeed how I see myself, how I see this ministry related to all this. So I hope you check that out. Torah Nuggets, number 10. Another one is the lessons in this series, The Gospel According to Moses, Lesson 5, Part 1 and Part 2. It's dating, it's related to the dating of Exodus as related to the real archaeology that's related to the Exodus, not just somebody's opinion. These are very important lessons for we as believers to actually see the veracity the truthfulness and the, and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, please remember in the in this series and in all all the things that we do, Light of Menorah tries to provide so much more, and this is only available at the website. The website is www.lightofmenorah.org, and Menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H. Lightofmenorah.org, all one word. And if you're looking at any of the podcasts or you're looking at any of the vidcasts, there's always a picture that's related to the specific podcast. And underneath that picture will be uh, some description, some more background behind the lesson that you're listening to or the video that you're watching. And then finally, there will be a link at the end to actually listen or watch. But in those descriptions... What I try to do is provide other links, other links that are resources that I think will be helpful uh, in that lesson or enhance what you're learning or even expand what you're learning. These topics sometimes are just too complex to do in a 15-minute, 30-minute, 40-minute podcast. And so Light of Menorah is trying to be as thorough as possible. Another thing for your FYI, uh, your for, for your information, is at the website, 
off on the right side or the left side, you should see a YouTube logo. And if you clicked on the YouTube logo, it will take you directly to all the videos that Light of Menorah has produced over these years. Some go back uh, a number of years, but some of them are the brand new ones. So all of this is at the website. Check these out. Hope all of these resources will provide a benefit to you. So let's begin. And we're going to go into Exodus 2.23, chapter 2, verses 22. Okay, so let's begin. And we're going to read Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23, through Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. And so we end chapter 2, and the first verse of chapter 3 is, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now the first thing I wanted to do was, uh, I wanted to thank Dennis Prager, who is a conservative talk show host and a deeply religious Jewish man. He's not Christian. And one of the main goals of his life is the study of Torah the teaching of Torah. And he inspired me to take a look at the verses in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23, in a new way. And I, I didn't realize this. He references the JPS Torah commentary, which is probably the premier Torah commentary, Jewish commentary, on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the brilliant scholar, Jewish scholar, Nahum Sarna, is the one that provided the commentary on Exodus. So what I wanted to do to read his commentary, Nahum Sarna's commentary here, because it's amazing uh, what's in these verses. Here it is. Nahum Sarna states on verses 23 through 25, It was an established practice in Egypt for a new king to celebrate his ascension to the throne by granting amnesty to those guilty of crimes, by releasing prisoners, and by freeing slaves. A hymn composed in honor of the accession of Ramses IV illustrates the custom. So Nahum Sarna is telling us that there is an ancient hymn related to when Ramses IV is going to be coronated king that relates to the fact that when the new pharaoh is coming in, he's going to release the prisoners, release the slaves. It records a happy day for Egypt when fugitives returned to their towns and when those in hiding emerged and those in prison were freed. This being so, the Israelites had good reason to expect that the change in regime would bring with it some 
alleviation of their condition. But this was not to be. Hence, the stress on the intensified misery of the enslaved Israelites. Moses, however, did benefit from this amnesty personally. Later on in chapter 4, in Exodus 4, verse 19, we're going to read that Moses was free. Uh, God even says the persons that the, the Pharaoh who was trying to uh, capture you and execute you because of the um, Egyptian that you had killed uh, is gone. And so, again, we get the sense of, in the culture, in the Egyptian culture, the new Pharaoh is releasing all the prisoners. Now, what's interesting in this verse is this. I'm going back to the New American Standard. And in verse 23, it says, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. Period. And the sons of Israel sighed because of, their, uh, of the bondage, and they cried out. Now there's a period there. Now, in the actual Hebrew, there is no period. This is so critical in terms of translation. So when we're reading that, we're reading the sentence so that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed. The implication in the Hebrew is one statement is related to the other. In other words, one statement comes from the other. Because the king of Egypt died, therefore the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage because they weren't released. And so in other versions, I don't know what other versions of the Bible that you may be reading, you really have to read it as the king of Egypt died, no period, no comma, just the conjunction and. And this is exactly what it does in Hebrew. Because therefore then we get this verification that we're probably dealing with that ancient culture. Now, the Hebrews are not freed. We know that. Others are freed. Like we said in Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, Moses is not guilty anymore. He's able to meet the next Pharaoh. That Pharaoh didn't forget Moses. Moses was in the family of the Pharaoh. His, the Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. Yes, maybe the Pharaoh had many other sons, but he's part of Pharaoh's family. Now that Pharaoh died, his adopted father his adopted father who actually wanted to hunt him down and bring him to jail and then execute him for the murder that he committed against the Egyptian. But now we see that based upon the culture, Moses is freed, but the slaves are not. Hebrews, it's hard enough facing cruel slavery, but now their hopes are dashed. They were depending probably depending upon being released as slaves when that pharaoh died. And so they cried out, Za'aka. That's that Hebrew word. It's not just crying out. It's a scream of deep terror or the scream of deep anguish. And so Pharaoh died and the Hebrews cried out. And they cried out to no one. They were at their wits end they were they were without hope and we've already covered this in previous lessons in this series 
that most of the Hebrews had forgotten the God of Abraham. They'd assimilated into the Egyptian culture before the slavery started. You can read, see that in Lesson 4. So I bring this up now since before slavery, life must have been really good. They were accepted into the pagan culture and society. And for Moses, too, he probably forgot a lot of his walk with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's in the house of Pharaoh for 40 years. He's immersed in this Egyptian culture. How much did he forget? And you have to ask the question, if they're immersed in the culture and they've assimilated in the culture, why would everyone, why, why would anyone want to leave? And go back to Canaan. Now, we're at a very interesting point. The Hebrews could very well have been trusting in the fact that they would be released as slaves, but they weren't. The next Pharaoh, which is the son of the previous Pharaoh, did not release them. Now we're going to ask the question at this point, is there a possibility that God had to force the Hebrews to leave? I mean, again, the question is, why leave? The richest, most powerful empire, kingdom on the face of the earth is Egypt in these days. Unbelievable wealth, unbelievable power. The abundance of food, the abundance of work. I mean, Pharaoh had enough jobs for everybody with all the building that they were doing. Why would anyone who want to go back to Canaan? So we have to ask the question, in light of where we're at right now, did God have to do something to force his people out of Egypt? At this point, I'm going to thank Ray Vanderland who was my first teacher way back when, when I and Robin went to Israel with him for a two-week intense Bible study tour as he took us back into looking at the Bible in its historical and archaeological context. Boy, that was just amazing. But Ray has a DVD series. Um, well, he's got a number of DVDs, and inside there he's got a series on Egypt. And in there he posed the same question. He said, how do you get these Hebrews out of Egypt? I mean, how do you get them to want to leave? I'm going to go to Exodus, or not Exodus, I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 20. And I'm going to start reading in verses 7 through 10 in the New American Standard. I said to them, now who's speaking here is God. Obviously God's speaking through his inspired, uh, his inspiration on uh, at the prophet Ezekiel. God said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And so in these two verses in 7 and 8, 
it gives us a picture that you say, wait a minute, yeah, they, they assimilated in Egypt. They, they, they became part of the culture. And then they not turn away from the idols of Egypt. Then I, God saying, resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. It's as if God is saying here in Ezekiel 20, as we look back to the Exodus, as we look back to the days of the harsh conditions that they lived in and the slavery, that indeed God brought it upon them. He brought his wrath upon his own people because they had assimilated into the pagan culture and the worship of the pagan gods of Egypt. Because he did not want his name, he did not want his name to be profaned in the eyes of the nations. So it seems as if God put the Hebrews into slavery, which was part of his plan. It's his plan related for all the nations. God was angry with the fact that they had simulated in the culture. They bought into idol worship. So God said, I'm going to pour my wrath upon them. I'm going to put them into harsh slavery and bondage, and we're going to get ready to leave. Now Pharaoh died. That's exactly what we're reading in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Pharaoh died. The new Pharaoh comes into power, and they're not released. They're still in bondage. The Hebrews thought we we're going to be freed, but they weren't. Now they lost hope in everything. Now, finally, they had a good reason to get out. And they cried out, Za'aka, to no one. God heard them. This is part of God's plan. He's got a, redem a redemption plan. Obviously, number one, to re redeem his people and bring them out of the bondage of slavery. But it's part of a bigger redemption plan for Jew and Gentile through Jesus, through the cross, bringing us out of the bondage of slim, sin and the slavery to Satan. Now, is this what God was waiting for? Many people ask, why did God wait for so long to finally take action? Well, we're at a point that's critical. Because the new Pharaoh comes to power, the Hebrews are not released, they lost all hope, and now God has them where he wants them to be. It seems plausible that it's engineered and orchestrated by God himself. Now is the time to bring in his man, his chosen one, Moses. So sometimes for me, I wonder, when I look at this, and I consider these events where the Hebrews assimilated into the culture of ancient Egypt. They immersed themselves in the religion of Egypt. 
the worldview of Egypt, worshiping their gods. And then God pours his wrath upon his own people to get them ready for the redemption that he's going to provide it through Moses so that they would come to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I then compare this, and I said, wait a minute, today, many of us Christians would say, yes, there seems to be evidence that many in the church have assimilated into this hedonistic, pagan culture that surrounds us here. Just like the Hebrews. Imagine! I just read an article the other day of the increase in anti-Semitism, anti-Israel aspects in the church today. It's, it's, it's surfacing like never before. Or imagine a president who proclaims himself to be a devout believer, a devout Christian, but signs an executive order for tax-funded abortion. I, that doesn't make sense. And so, I ask, will God bring his wrath upon the church? Just like Israel. He had to get them ready for his redemption through Moses to bring them into a new covenant and lead them to the promised land. It's almost as if a picture, God is going to do the same thing to the church. He's going to pour his wrath upon us to get ready for the second coming of the Messiah. When finally the Messiah will take those that turn to him, those that belong to him, and bring them in to the promised land where we will live with him forever. Will God get us ready for the coming of the ultimate Redeemer in Yeshua? One last comment that I wanted to make on verse 24. It said, God remembered his covenant. And you say, huh? Did God forget? And you're going to read this in Genesis. So if you were in the Genesis series, the Gospel according to Moses in Genesis, that's there as well. So I'm going to address it right now because it's related to your study of Genesis or Exodus or any parts, really, of the Torah. Does God forget? Does he need a Google calendar on his laptop to remind him that he's got something coming up? Does God have an alarm set on his kingdom digital cell phone to wake him up to remember? Now, the Hebrew word there is zakar. The Strong's number is 2142. And it has the idea of remember, of something to bring to mind, but also it's related to the idea of bearing something in mind. In other words, constantly being cognizant of something. In other words, where there's something on your mind all the time. Now, understanding zakar means that, this means we have a more reasonable idea of the translation. So when he heard their groaning, it's not that he remembered his covenant because he forgot. God heard their groaning because he had a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with Isaac and a covenant with Jacob 
and it was constantly on his mind. So uh, once again, the English does not give us the proper understanding in terms of when we're reading this that God would forget. Zakar, remember Cain killed Abel. And you can go to the Gospel according to Moses, Genesis Lesson 14, where we really talk about Cain killing Abel. And in there, we really get into the Hebrew, where it talks about the fact that the bloods of Abel, not the blood, the bloods of Abel cried out. And the implication is the generations that would have come from Abel were crying out to God. And so when we go to Psalm 9, verse 12, it says, He who requires blood, in terms of God's justice, he remembers. He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Zakar. The cry of the afflicted, the cry of the innocent, is something that God bears on his mind constantly. He doesn't forget it. It's always there. 62 million babies have been killed due to abortion since Roe versus Wade. If just one man who was murdered, Abel, Abel, and his bloods cry out, can you imagine the cry? Za'aka, coming up to God, the cries of sheer terror, the babies that were completely destroyed. Their blood cries out to Adonai. God always has this on his mind. So, undo, so indeed, we return to the Hebrew. It adds and enhances our understanding in the English. And for us now in these days, I truly fear, for me, my view, I truly fear what may be ahead of us in the United States. The Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And is God going to hold us responsible for allowing this to happen? 62 million. And many of the other things where we can say the church perhaps failed. I'm not sure. It's just I truly fear our rush into evil since the election. The last thing I want to cover in this lesson is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and it talks about that Moses came to the mountain of God. Now, in Judaism, it is clear that Moses and the Messiah are related. They are very much connected from the perspective of a religious Jew. I'm quoting from Raphael Pate's book called The Messiah Texts. This is about all of the Jewish literature, 
including the Bible, where verses are related to the Messiah. And just to read some of this, for instance, the Messiah is one of the most noble royal blood, is of the most noble royal blood known in Israel, that is the house of David, like Moses. Moses is one of the noblest, uh, is one of the noblest line that existed in those early days among the children of Israel, and that's the priest family of Levi in Hebrew or Levi. The great task both of the Messiah and Moses are destined to fulfill is the redemption of their people from bondage. Isn't that interesting? The bondage of the exile and dispersion in the case of Messiah and the bondage of the Egyptian slavery in the case of Moses. Both Messiah and Moses will lead their people back to the promised land, the Holy Land, the land of the fathers. At the time of the advent of both, the people have suffered for a long time and for many generations. But in the absence of divine help, they have been unable to better their lot. Both Moses and the Messiah spend an inordinately long time waiting for the divinely ordained moment when they can embark on their mission of salvation. Going on in Pate's book, The Messiah Text, after he, the Messiah, is revealed, he is hidden again. Now, I find this interesting. This is Jewish literature. After the Messiah is revealed, then he's hidden again from his people. It sounds like Jesus' birth. Here's the Messiah revealed, and now he's hidden. He died and rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father, and he is coming again. And then, it says, and only upon his second appearance does the great global process of redemption begin. He goes on and he says, as the Redeemer, Moses, so the last Redeemer, Messiah. Just as the first Redeemer was revealed to the children of Israel, and then again hidden, so the last Redeemer will be revealed and then hidden. <laughs> wow. Moses is the first Redeemer. Messiah is the ultimate Redeemer. And related to the mountain of God, you can read in Exodus 3.1 or in context in Exodus 4.27 or 24.13, so many different places, that Sinai is the mountain of God. Now again, Moses is the first redeemer. He brings, under God's obviously leading, them to Mount Sinai, and a new covenant is established at that mountain. And reading in Jewish literature, as the Messiah was first revealed, then he's hidden. And the second appearance of the Messiah means that's when the global, global process, Jew and Gentile alike, of redemption will begin. We remember Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the mountain of God. You can read about this in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You can read about this in Isaiah 66, verse 20. The mountain of God had moved. And the ultimate Redeemer, the Messiah, Yeshua, there at his Passover meal the night before he died, he takes a cup and he says it's a cup of a new covenant and he establishes a new covenant at the mountain of God 
Jerusalem. Amazing. Does the Torah witness of Jesus? Yes. God now is instructing us, giving us his Torah, not his law, his instruction. And it's clear that as we know Moses, as we come to understand the Exodus, and we understand and come to grasp the first redemption, God gives us a picture to help us understand what his final redemption will be like through the cross, by the blood of Jesus, at the mountain of God in Jerusalem. It was at that point where Jesus said, it is finished. See you in the next lesson. Shalom. Thank you.